Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. One of the major lessons of the pandemic is how it has raised our considerations or our curiosity about the relevance of the workplace as a physical location in which people come together to accomplish their tasks and their work. There are numerous stories of empty locations, empty workplaces, empty offices, and attempts by employers to bring their workers back. Some of these attempts involve enticements or promises of better snacks or more fun or whatever it is. Well, others might involve threats, as in, if you don't come back, you will no longer have a job. This speaks to a larger and growing question of what does the workplace provide to us that we can't get working at home in my slippers and my pajamas and not having to deal with traffic? And how might we design a workplace that people actually want to be in? Now, to create a better workplace, the workplace designer has to or should embrace an experience design mindset. Workplaces are not just about utility, but they're about the experiences they provide, and the vision they represent. The cubicle farm of some workplaces tells you pretty much what is thought of the workers, especially a cubicle farm that's devoid of life, growth, happiness, and hope. We form an emotional attachment to the workspaces that we inhabit, whether it's a home office, a cozy corner of a library, or a bustling cubicle in a bustling office. Our workspaces become an extension of ourselves. And a lot of that has to do with the fact of how much time we spend at work and how much of our work forms our identity of who we are. We come to rely on their familiarity, the way that the light cascades throughout the window, or the smell of the coffee machine in the break room. It's not just the physical attributes of the workspace, though. There's an emotional attachment that develops, too. So space and place come together to mean something and how we design that space in that place is going to have a big impact on what it ultimately means. And for this reason, we are really excited today on Experience by Design to welcome Doug Shapiro. He is the Vice President of Research and Insights at OFS Furniture, and he runs the great Imagine a Place podcast, which we got to do on this podcast. Good. You know, and we'll be talking with Doug about these important areas about what space and place might mean to us, getting a sense of how we need to develop more creativity also beyond this, right? As a society, not just a workplace and how these can go together uh, in order to face the bigger challenges that we have in front of us. And so this is, I think, one of the really interesting ideas of connecting place with with space, right? These are certain areas that mean something to us in our lives, but then how do they interact with the, the wider environment itself? And, you know, the conversation helps us think about this again, pulling in this kind of broader idea of of systems thinking. We might we might even say. And the thing about this is, we need that kind of creativity, right? Because this is not just about the future of work. You know, whether we're going to get back to an office and it'll be nice or not, but this is actually also about the importance of what's going to happen in the world. And Doug helps us walk through the strong connection that we need to think about between place, health, and productivity. And we'll be digging into how the design of an environment has to reflect the different types of people that exist in this place and speak to them all in their own way. The workplace needs to be different in order to support what is important to each individual person. What are people trying to accomplish in these spaces? Now, what's interesting is when I'm saying this, you know, we might immediately think, okay, how do we help people be productive? But really what Doug is going to help us walk through is that supporting what's important for people to do is actually things like connect, to laugh, and to create new ideas. So, and also, you know, as plants need sunlight to grow, so do we, right? So, you know, Gary, you're right on that, that light that cascades in a window makes a difference to, do I want to be in this office or cubicle farm? You know, and beyond this idea, we also need a fertile environment in which we can feel cared for. We can feel nurtured and that we can feel welcome. And so really what this is, is, is thinking about the soul of a workplace. You know, how do we create one and create a space that also creates a culture that will support the flourishing of those who work there? So a lot of really, really kind of cool ideas are, are we're, we, we dig into in this episode today. But two more things just to point out is that we're also going to be talking about how laughter might be the best metric of success 
at all, which I think is really a really great idea. And perhaps surprising, but also deeply true, we found out that how a closet full of wigs mm. may actually be the key to changing corporate culture. A lot of wigs, a lot of conversation, a lot of insight, and a lot of possibility. So we're really happy to have Doug Shapiro on the podcast, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. When you say something like, you know, for your audience, it sounds impressive you have an audience. What's that like? What's it like having a podcast audience? <laughs> Can you describe I, that feeling for me? It's not, you know, it's, I try to not make it so one way, but you know, you send stuff out into outer space and you never know, uh, you never know who's listening. So uh, maybe it's just make-believe. Maybe I just pretend. Oddly enough, I feel the same way when I'm teaching a class with students in the classroom. You never know who's listening. <laughs> Even if they're in person, right? It's not always the same. That's a good point. So, I mean, how do how do we know what we're designing actually is being received? I mean, ultimately, it's I don't know. I mean, I guess I could give them a test. I could do that. I could ask them pop questions. I could do that. Is you do that, test on your podcast, Doug? Is that is that how that works? Yeah, maybe we should do what that. Do you I yeah. <laughs> it, it's like um, it's like when we would hold the stuff up into outer space and just hope that there's a message that comes back. <laughs> I think that was a, I don't know if you saw Troop Zero. I just, I so much enjoyed that, that movie. Um, mm. Not ringing a bell. No, I've not I, seen that. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Put, put it on your list. If you got, if you All got right. Netflix, uh, you might cry a little, but the, uh, you mean more than usual. <laughs> not okay. laugh, cry, like cry, right. cry. Yeah. Yeah. What's it about? But it's about, um, a Girl Scout troop of, uh, I, I don't know, maybe you'd call them misfits or, you know, people who kind of banded together because they were excluded from other groups mm. and they go and they compete in a, uh, in a competition, a talent competition. And it just hits home. It's just a, it's just a special movie in terms of, I don't know, understanding belonging and understanding, uh, all the points of view out there. Yeah, it's actually a really nice, uh, I definitely will watch it. And, you know, I, I do always worry that the more messages we send out there for aliens, the more we might, they might come here and just not be very nice. So there's always that concern. <laughs> oh, you don't think they're here already? Well, I'm, I mean, maybe advanced <laughs> troops, almost like the recon team. And, but I, I do always have this vision of people, you know, aliens coming here. And it's like, you know, pulling over into a truck stop in some rural area and just kind of going, oh man, I'm not staying here. It's like, everyone get back in the car, keep driving. We're not, you don't want to go in there. It's, it's, it's crazy. Those people are nuts. So that's my vision of what aliens view, view earth as. They're like, they come here, they're like, oh, we were looking for intelligent life. And then they found us. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but actually thinking of design, that's, that's actually a great segue. You know, you totally teed that up, didn't you? I did. Um, you know, it was good though, but but I think because it reminds me, there's there's a book I enjoyed last uh, probably a year or so ago that when I was um, teaching, I taught in a design program for a few years, and um, it was called the Intergalactic Design Guide, and it was just premised around this question: is is about social impact design? But the the forward or the intro always stuck with me because it was asking this question: if aliens came to Earth right now, and alien archaeologists, and they were like, what is that people are designing and leaving behind like what would they see in terms of systems and, and stuff and so um speaking of that i'm thinking about like artifacts that we tend to leave behind you know I, I, like this interesting question in terms of how do we decide what is what's worth making and so thinking about that in a furniture sense i'm enjoying my 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 seating right now in a chair I'm, I'm on a desk i'm in an office you know so thinking about like the space in which i inhabit and you know if an alien were to come to to earth right now and kind of think about this like I don't know. In, in your yeah, perspective, I mean, in terms of like, across, how do we make those choices? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what what if they walked into an office and what would they what would they think we do there? Especially, you know, <laughs> like one of the old fashioned offices full of cubicles. You walk in and they'd be like, "Oh, this is this is where they send the prisoners." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that wouldn't be wrong. No, no, right. In some ways, in some ways, we put ourselves in cages. Uh, but I feel like many of us have found our way out, and uh, we've understand we've understood uh, the importance of joy in the workplace. 
And uh, we're seeing that show up in the way we design the workplace. And I'm, I am optimistic that we are heading in the right direction. When, when you, it, it always is fascinating to me in terms of the business or management philosophy around what an office or what a business should look like and how that kind of intersects or collides with how designers and, so, and social scientists, what we know about people and mm. what we know they want and how they think about space. Right. And so in your experience and like, you're just, you know, we think about designing for users versus designing for customers. The, the purchasing officer might be the customer, but the people who work there can be the user and what their needs and wants are can be very different things. Do you come across that or come up against that very much in your work? Oh yeah. Um, just the, the notion of what an office should look like. That's interesting because, um, it shouldn't change depending on who you ask, but I think for a long time, the building, the office was a tribute to the brand and the company. Um, mm -hmm. And now I feel like more than ever over the past 10 years, we've been moving in this direction where we understand that it's really for the people that are there. And if we do that right, um, you know, that that is where we should start. I mean, I think one of the most significant ways that we can build a workplace centered around people is really just to start by understanding all the ways that space can uh, space can uh, impact the health of all the all the occupants. Like if we just started there, um, there's so much education just in that subject, whether it's sunlight, biophilia, uh, lighting in general, access to nourishment, equitable experiences. There's so much in the subject of health and the interconnection between health and place. Um, and there's so much new data coming out right now around that. Right. So that that's a, I think a huge opportunity to think, okay, well, if we centered our, if we centered our attention around that, how would that change what an office should look like? Right. And then even just the, the idea of should, I mean, what is professional right now? And, mm. and I think that's steering us in a whole different direction, right? I mean, there's definitely a casualization uh, that's happening. And I think that's, hugely important to people not pretending anymore, not pretending to be someone they're not. Um, and, and I, th I think space should do the same. I mean, space shouldn't pretend to be something it's not, you know, and mm -hmm. you see spaces that put on um, the wrong clothes and have no reflection of the real people that are inside there. Right. Was this a topic of your commencement speech when you gave it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, I, I did, you know, I talked about, um, I talked about, so here's, here's what it was about. Uh, maybe there's a way to tie this to place, but there was, uh, you know, when you're in a university, you're kind of in this tiny bubble. And the one we right. were in, I, I went to a small, it was 2000 people. Okay. And so the thought was, how do we take all this wonderful energy that we've created and bring that outside the bubble? Right, bring it in into mm -hmm. into the universe. I'm still figuring out how to make uh, how to make everyday life as fun as college, but you know, I, that's <laughs> that's hard. That's hard. Good goal. Good goal. Yeah, mm -hmm. designing the tech, the keg room in the office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But even the idea of learning for learning for fun, right? Like the, 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 there's a fun component to learning, I guess. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. There is, and you know, a lot of it is just stance. What's your stance on life? And, uh, mm -hmm. you can have the same stance you had in college the rest of your life. You can do that. I mean, mm -hmm. there's limits there. Like you said, maybe not <laughs> stay out of the keg room, but, uh, <laughs> but the idea of just being a lifelong learner is, yeah, we can do that. That is true. We get a tax yeah. credit for that too, which is even better. So, so, <laughs> so you, you've split time in the uh in, in office buildings and in classrooms right um i'd love to explore what one could learn from the other you know i've thought a lot about that i don't know if you guys have a point of view mm. on on that subject yeah for sure i mean it's one of my students one of my grad students in my ex, you know ethnography experience design class she actually worked at a university not mine but another one and she did her project for the semester on learning experiences and space. And so part of it's interesting to see the ways in which 
schools try to create space for different purposes. So we're going to create a space where there can be more collaborative learning, and we're going to create a space that is fun, that is customizable. Or do we want a traditional space? I was just talking with some colleagues around how we have all these uh, all this technology now in the classroom because of the pandemic and hybrid learning that we're not using because there's this expectation that universities are a place-based institution, whatever that means, right? I mean, this idea that place-based needs to be physical versus can be, you know, virtual as well. That that's, that place extends beyond the corporal realm into the, you know, ethereal, so to speak, speaking of mm. aliens or ghosts or whatever, you know? And so I think businesses are wrestling with the same thing. How do we come yeah. to culturally defined space what does a place mean? How do we make place? We had someone else on the podcast, uh, yeah, about uh, Julia B about who was about placemaking, right? With her company. How do we make place? Place is not a thing that exists. It's a thing we construct. And so how do artifacts factor into that? How do, des- how does design facilitate or limit that? And what, and what, how does the space that we create, how is that embedded in a philosophy that we're trying to achieve? Yes, yes. Uh, and that that philosophy, how does it represent values, culture? Right. How does it understand the context in which it sits? You know, um, just thinking about the classroom and thinking about the schedule of a student, I feel like they are the first, like that was the first version of hybrid work. I mean, you think about it, a student does probably a very similar proportion of solo work and group work. And they also do learning and it's very much, it's actually not that different than a normal day for me. Um, Mm. The difference is their environment is set up to kind of support this episodic work, right? Like where there's um, there's moments when we're, when you're together and there's spaces set up specifically for that. Um, they just don't have to scurry off to an assigned place. Mm-hmm. They can stay unassigned. So in a way, I kind of feel like, you know, there's a little bit of learning there in terms of how this, you know, how a campus environment is set up as to how hybrid work could look totally different where, where the, this, and there's also a sense of rhythm to it mm-hmm. where I feel like we haven't really found a rhythm where it's like, Hey, we're, you know, we're spending Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and we're meeting, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're doing less of that, you know, and, and there's, we just haven't found that rhythm yet. There's a lot of Zoom meetings that could probably happen in person that probably should happen in person. Um, we just mm-hmm. need to stop scheduling that on Tuesday and wait for Wednesday when we're in the classroom together or whatever it All is. Right. I just, I think there's a, there's a rhythm we need to discover. And I think we can take some inspiration from, from campuses in terms of hybrid work. Oh, that, that's good. That, that I was thinking of that same idea where it's the the schedule and cadence is is I think a really important piece because right it, it is this this idea right that we have meetings get scheduled much scheduled is not a word but it should be scheduled mm-hmm. um, on this you know oftentimes ad hoc basis right for in, in the business world right that okay we'll meet on this Tuesday when when your team's free our team's free whatever and there there is no cadence and so there is some element of chaos always. But right, it's like when a student, you always have your classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which is interesting because because uh, as an example, teaching design thinking, um, I've taught it a number of times, and I've done it both online, which is hard, uh, in person for a three hour, like one evening a week, and then also twice a week for like an hour and a half. They're all three different challenges because you then are meeting one week to talk about the a process of discovery, then the next week about ideation, the next week about, you know, reflection. And so it's interesting to kind of think across that made it really hard to like do a, a business time scale. So this is this, the, mm. the rhythm question is interesting because it's, it's like for something like this is just design thinking, but obviously doing like lessons that aren't necessarily linked together so deeply, like working on one project across the semester. Um, it's interesting in that regard. That was one of the things I always I kept running into. It was was that I'd, I'd love to like do a sprint with them, but you can't do a sprint really well in three hours. I mean, you it's very hard mm. to do it then week to week to week. Um, you know, so I think I think that is a really interesting question that that business had like a bit more flexibility of when we can meet. But I like the idea. I think you're right on too that having a, a, a rhythm of when we meet would save a lot of meetings. 
<laughs> no, and a lot of like fluff, uh, fluff work, we might say, you know. Yeah, fluff work, and uh, it would allow us to immerse ourselves in in those concentration moments a little deeper. Yeah, you know, I find myself mm-hmm. bumping in and out of of personal whiteboard time, which I love, and uh, and scheduled zooms, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. so I trust we'll get there. I do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's another element to the university uh, vibe. We'll just say vibe, mm-hmm. um, creativity. That that that's I I feel like is a is of increasing importance right now. That we understand creativity. And one of the mm-hmm. questions I love to ask is, how do we get as good at knowledge work or, or, at creative work as we've become at knowledge work? Because we've we've become excellent at knowledge work, sharing it, mm-hmm. storing it. Uh, you know, input, output, uh, teaching it, and creativity um, is the future. I mean, knowledge work is becoming increasingly commoditized and systemized through AI. So we know we have to be more creative. Like we know that ten years from now, we will have to be way more creative in in our work in our jobs. And so, again, there are some things I I feel like I was probably more creative. In college, really, you know, and mm. I, I feel like there is a, there is an energy there that supports it. Um, there is a natural the curiosity is encouraged at the highest degree, you know. And I think uh, not only, not only do the does leadership require that, you know, they they they, they demand curiosity in that setting, but uh, the spaces are are arranged to kind of, you know, inform that and, and help, help inspire that. And you compare those spaces to what might be a more formal boardroom right. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you might compare the dress codes to what might be, you know, considered professional. And all of a sudden you show up and you're not yourself and you don't feel like sharing because it's not comfortable. And mm-hmm. so there's something there too, where right. it's like, well, how do we, how do we let, the importance of creativity also inform our spaces, and that's something I'm I've been exploring a lot with with guests uh, on on my podcast. Right, it's 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 a I'm, I'm I'm two minds of this, and while on the one hand I think that that higher education, at least the work we can do in it, can be more creative. Being in higher education for as long as I've been, I also understand it's probably the most resistant to change institution we have <laughs> in that <laughs> the model fundamentally hasn't changed in like 500 years plus. You know, it's still this didactic person in front of the room um, who's, you know, professing, being a professor, information to students. And at a time where increasingly there's this expectation of rubrics where we oh, have yeah. to establish very rigid frameworks for evaluating work. One of the scariest things I do with my students is give them freedom. I, I, I describe <laughs> it as being a, an indoor cat. And if you've ever had an indoor cat and you take your indoor cat, who's always been indoors and you throw it outdoors and see what happens, you know, a number of things usually happen. One is it just kind of cowers and meows, you know, pitifully. It might throw itself at the screen begging to come back in. Once in a while, you'll have a cat go like, yeah, this is pretty sweet and just kind of take off. And I think a lot of our students have been trained to be indoor cats through standardization, through routinization. Not always, but, you know, especially teaching at a business school, it's, um, you know, the creativity is pretty bounded. We still have them write traditional papers. We're still having them take traditional tests. They're still thinking in traditional ways. Mm. And it's too bad because there's great opportunity, much more so in, in a lot of business spaces to do this creative work. And so, you know, it's, it's pushing, it's pushing those limits, establishing trust and, you know, embracing fear and uncertainty that we need to do a better job with in higher education. And I don't know that we can just do it by creating, throwing more whiteboards in a classroom. You know what I mean? It's a, I, I agree. a fundamental thing that we we need to reckon with ourselves. It's it's fundam- fundamental is a great word because it's it's cultural. Yeah, what, totally. what, what do we celebrate in people? Right. Totally. It starts in grade school. You know, I mean, what are we celebrating? What are we rewarding? Um, and mm-hmm. just the the idea. Well, we all know the importance of of group group dynamics and collaboration and sharing. And how that is 
critical to creativity. And uh, yet you, you, you train yourself to be rewarded on individual work and you're individually judged. And then you enter the working world where uh, throw that out the window. That doesn't even matter anymore. Right. You know, how does a team tackle something and it becomes less about you and how do you be a great teammate, create a great team. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean that, that is, so, so the problem is, is rooted deep. The, the problem being, how do we get as good at creativity as we become at knowledge work that is rooted deep in the systems. Um, this is, this is all important thinking. And I think it's, it's, it's important that we start to kind of understand that I, I believe as leaders in the workplace, not just as designers, but um, if you want to, if you want to design more creatively, there's ways you can, you can bring this into your work habits and right. your leadership skills. I mean, I think the first time we talked, uh, we talked about laughter. We did. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, um, you know, if you could measure any one thing in the workplace, uh, what would it be? That was a question I was asked and it didn't come to me instantly, but over time I've landed on laughter. And the mm. reason, the reason I think laughter is important is it's an indicator of so many things. First, it's an indicator of honestly of health. You know, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And if you go a week without laughing, that could be a pretty dangerous place to be, you know, right. mentally. So how are your people feeling? But then also the culture, you know, the culture of your workplace. Laughter is a huge indicator of culture. Are people getting along? Are friendship, you know, are friendships happening? People are 10 times more likely to stay in their job if they have friends. So if people, Mm -hmm. if there's no laughter, there's a good chance people aren't going to stay around. And then um, I also think it informs creativity. You know, laughter indicates an openness, a vulnerability, a sharing. And sharing of ideas. And I think when you have a, an environment where people are laughing, they are way more likely to share that wild, silly idea, even though it's not a good one, because it'll lead to the next wild, right. silly idea. And it, so I, I think there's something, there's something that we're not paying attention to, probably because it goes back to the beginning of the conversation. It's not professional. Right. Does mm. this mean that you're in the process of designing a tickle chair for the office space? <laughs> <laughs> that would be incredible. No, I do want the Apple Watch to uh, to start tracking laughter, though. I think I think it ought to. And if it if it heard if it paid attention to to all that that could could show us, uh, I think it's just as important as steps. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. great because I obviously could. It's listening. It gives us ads we don't want by listening in our conversation. <laughs> I don't see why it couldn't monitor our laughter and there, there's enough accelerometers on that thing that you totally could get this like if like you know uh, the way like you might bounce when you're laughing you know it could um you could get it so that, that could be an interesting thing yeah i like that yeah. idea too um yeah, something you. else that or, go, go ahead sorry Dad. no that's it um i i love this idea though i think laughter is a really uh a really compelling thing to think about um because it's different, you know, it, it's it's an echo of the kind of bigger questions we see on some of the, the world stage places in terms of how do we talk about like the wellness of a country, right? And so instead of GDP, mm-hmm. it's like, what is what about the gross happiness index? And like, asking, looking at these kinds of ideas of like, what if we measured, oftentimes we say that which can't be measured, right? But I think laughter is a great like thing you actually could measure. Like, <laughs> how many chuckles do you have in a day? Um, yes. Is it a chuckle? Is it like a deep? Is it a deep laughter? Is it a co with someone else laughter? You're like chuckling at YouTube. You're like all these things. I think could be really interesting of of how laughter takes place. I might Absolutely. I'm gonna make a laughter journal now after this. KPIs, <laughs> yes, KPIs. <laughs> and the the uh, how I landed on this actually uh, was a Snapple cap. It was on the back of a Snapple mm. cap. I took a picture of it years ago, and I had always remembered it. It said something. Uh, you know, kids laugh, you know, 40 to 80 times a day and adults laugh something like <laughs> six to 15 times a day. And I'm like, Oh Whoa. God, this is so bad. Uh, there's a, there's a designer I interviewed also that really understood this. His name was Manny Navarro and he's the design principal uh, of interior architects in Austin, Texas. And he actually has a closet full of wigs in the office and like dress up accessories. and. um and he credits that closet uh, to really changing the culture in the firm. And, and not just that, he was like, we start putting them on with calls, Zoom calls with contractors, 
you know, and electrical engineers, and they love it. And they start looking forward to the calls and then they bring their wigs out. And it's this sort of <laughs> contagious energy they've created. And uh, I guarantee the people in that place are thinking differently than the one where they are, you know, where the dress code is strictly enforced and we're, and we're, you know, trying to make work robots. Adam might be really in favor of that idea of having dangerous, you know, in the yeah. workplace, maybe on the yeah. wig, wigs in the podcast. I, I did used to have a, a pretty excellent mullet wig that I, I need to, I need to find and, uh, <laughs> oh. and pull back out. Yeah. I feel like for 10 years now, people have been saying that's coming back. It's coming back. But no, I, I don't know that it ever comes back. Alas, you know, but it's, I, but I think this is, this is really uh, an interesting avenue too, because it makes me think of um, the Burning Man community also, and just burners in general, like there is this creative playfulness that comes with, with participation. And, and also the, the, I mean, there's a lot of principles we could think about here too, but the idea of radical, um, radical participation also mm. um, that like, you can't just watch, you have to do and be a part of it. And, and, that I think that's in part why there's such emphasis on the playfulness, like uh, in terms of, you know, just an everyday activity, like, um, you know, this is not entirely NSFW, but just, just slightly that like, for example, there's, there's a, um, I've been to a few different burns and like, there's one, you can get pancakes for breakfast, which is great. Um, but if you, there's always a line cause who doesn't want pancakes in the morning, right? Sure. But if you want to skip the line, you have to get spanked by the spatula on your, on your butt. Um, and so you can do that, but then you have to do it in front of everybody. And so there's like this, this is obviously this playfulness. That's a little weird, but you can cut line if you want to, um, you know, but so, but this idea, even in terms of, um, if you want to get ahead, you got to then give something back to the community, but then it's, Ooh. it's, it's all done in like jest and play, you know? So I, I think this is interesting as well. Um, also, I'm I'm reading uh, the second book by Becky Chambers. She's a, a sci-fi author, um, but writes in a genre called hope punk, which is interesting. So you may have heard of uh, you know the different kinds of like cyberpunk movements, and they're all like very dystopian. A lot of Chambers' work is this hope punk, where it's actually not a whole lot happens narratively. Like they sit around and drink tea and talk about life, <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's like a robot and a tea monk talking. You know, for example. Uh, and in the in the second book right now, they are they're just uh, basically instead of the, the entire scenario is that instead of um, robots like Terminator coming in, taking and destroying the Earth or killing all humans, which is like our typical story. In this one, humans created robots, but then after working in factories for a few hundred years, they're like, you know, what? we're done, cool, and they walked away to the wilderness and left. Uh, and then now, <laughs> uh, so for the first time a robot is coming back to humanity after a few hundred years it's the first robot people have seen and so this the character is explaining to the robot how like what money is today in essence and they don't have money in this this current world they actually have um they're called pebs or digital pebbles and you actually just exchange them in acknowledgement that somebody did something for you or the community and so you don't pay for like a coffee but then you'd give them you know pebs if i if i got you guys a coffee then you'd you'd give me some pebs, but then you would then go pay it forward to someone else. And so like, you don't actually exchange like a money for a service. You actually then always just pay things forward. And there's like a record of it, but that's mm. the, that's their system of exchange now, which I think is really, really cool. So even this idea of like, uh, do we both like a hey, two things and are, are we like willing to be creatively playful, you know, with our, mm. with our creativity and our office spaces. And then second, um, thinking about in loose air quotes, the economic model of like how we exchange ideas, information and services with each other. Um, and then instead of like making it so much about like, am I getting the right dollar amount always? Um, or are we extracting maximum value out of our employees today? Right. Cause it's a way to say that too. Yeah. Um, laughter is a great way of being like, actually let's talk about what is the exchange of like wellness that's happening in, in our office space. Ooh, I like, and I just love that word exchange uh, and how it mm -hmm. relates to people, to a community, people, to a team, an organization, to its people, a space to yeah. its people and, and, and back and forth. I mean, yeah, we do talk about all the time. How can, how can space support the health of people? How can people mm -hmm. support a healthy space too? Is, is an interesting exchange yeah. also, you know, like yeah. there's, there's some thinking we have to do in both directions that I love about that. Uh, I wonder if there's a little symbolism between the robots leaving the factories and, and the pandemic, you know, like, and they come back and they're done and yeah. they've changed, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and they're different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. You know, and, and anthropologists are very big on exchange systems. 
They, mm, they're very yeah. big on this idea of potlatch cultures and exchanging reciprocity. And, you know, when we think about the modern workplace, you know, the reciprocity is transactional. And this goes, you know, if we want to get really social sciencey here, you can even look at something like Marx, Karl Marx, you know, about alienation of workers from the thing they produce because they sell their labor for a wage, right? So it becomes very mm. transactional. And the nature of the relationship is I do something for you and then you pay me. And that's, that's, that's it versus more of a community oriented exchange system, which a lot of, mm. or, well, a lot of workplaces aspire to get to. But they do so with maintaining the traditional exchange system. And so when we have like a exchange system that's transactional and you're trying to create a community that's um, belief based or community, you know, or, you know, belonging based, those things aren't necessarily going to align. And, and so you got to radically rethink the exchange systems as we've been talking about if you want that other kind of community to exist. Yes. Yeah. The community where, I mean, you, you're at work, but um, the common goal is not just the customer, uh, you know, mm. or, 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 or the product that we're making. And I, I, I feel like I've been a part of that where you, you never, it's not like you lose sight of the mission, but you enjoy the process so much that work mm -hmm. is, is, uh, is a convenient and rewarding excuse to come together and have fun, you know? Uh, maybe we're not all lucky enough to have that. Maybe it's unrealistic to think everyone will get that. I don't know. Well, you know, if you think, I just was thinking about this and I looked it up, um, the definition of profit, right? On the one hand, it's financial gain. On the other hand, it's to benefit from something. And mm -hmm. so how do we conceptualize profit in terms of benefiting from the workplace, in terms of laughter, belonging, health, uh, trust, you know, mission, purpose, whatever, right? Versus I'm profiting simply on the metric of financial gain, which as I tell my students, if all you care about is financial gain, then there's no better system potentially than slavery. Because that way you don't uh. have to pay your employees at all. And they're like, well, you, that's, that's wrong. I'm like, okay, so if it's wrong, then what's right? then what, how do we envision the kind of community and business space that we want to exist in? And going back to, you know, the work that you do, to what extent is it just a matter of building a certain kind of environment, which I think a lot of organizations would like to believe is a case. If you build an open office, people will collaborate versus yes, that might help. That's, that's an affordance that can be created through this design. But at the same time, there needs to be other supporting features to enable that to exist. A absolutely. Um, I feel like there is a, you know, I don't, I think we like to sometimes think of, of furniture and design as, as a hammer. I've heard this before. I, I can't remember exactly who told me this, but I loved it. Furniture design is this hammer and every problem is a nail. And we're like, Oh, culture problem, change the workplace, you know? <laughs> and it's like, the reality is, you know, it is so much deeper than that. Uh, I do think there is a, a strong connection between place and health place. And, and then, and then that will bleed into productivity. Um, but certain things like culture and belonging are more deeply rooted in other factors and place can reflect and support uh, in many ways, those, but it's not the hammer, you know, uh, and, and even, even health, health, you know, place, place is an important factor, but, um, there's so much that goes into health, um, including, you know, there's a, there's a biological nutritional element. I mean, you can, you can put things like plant life in, in place. So there's, there's that there's also, um, obviously, just the neurodiversity of the people in the place. Right. And actually, you know, the, the, the design of an environment has to reflect that as well, because you've got people that are wired for, uh, quiet, subdued places where they're going to be their most comfortable and do their best work. And then you've got people that need action and energy, and you have to fit all of that into one one workplace if you want to accommodate 
you know, all the bright minds in your office. Hmm. That's, so, I think to, um, if I can, if I can tag in there real quick, like I think yeah. reflecting back to our, our classroom versus office space, I think this is a really interesting area to think with because, you know, higher education is really trying to, um, or some areas of it are really trying to also address these questions of how do we think about neurodiverse learning styles, right? How do we think about um, the different, you know, schedule needs and even just the, you know, economic backgrounds of students that have different stressors in terms of how they can, they can participate and perform. Uh, and I, I think, uh, yeah, like I, the, the, campus question is one then then the classroom question is like another subset and like as we think about a modern office too like there there is m multiple kinds of spaces and it's like because it, i was kind of thinking about when he first has that question are we thinking about my office adam's office or like the office space in which i am at an office building you know um and even that so i think that I, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about this too in terms of how do we think about scale with that too right because i think neurodiversity yeah. is a really great area to think about and and you know how do we think across like individual offices, hopefully not cubicles, um, but also again, the challenge of open office can, can suck too, right? If it, it can also not be great if, if it's not actually responding to people's needs. So how do you think about that? That question of scale when we're, we're talking about design of a, of a space? Well, I, I usually start with, uh, okay, so if the space is a, is a blank, blank canvas, right? Just a white piece of paper. And, and I asked you to imagine all the kinds of activities that you would do in a day and you would pencil out those activities and you would think about the number of people that, that you involve in those activities. So that's a factor as well. And then I would ask you to think about, well, and, and how do you like to be, how do you like that activity? You know, what works for mm -hmm. you? You start to think of this white piece of paper it really has to be, a sort of network of settings and uh and you have to think about the workplace as this network of settings and then then you can focus on those settings and and design out from there and and so you know okay well i need a setting that supports uh discovery and it's got to support discovery for groups of four to eight people you know and i need a setting that's going to support uh quiet work for somebody you know, that has, um, you know, that needs to be out of traffic. And then I need a, a, a setting to support a touchdown space for someone that loves the energy and the noise of a cafe. And, right. And it's like, okay, it's a lot to consider, but mm -hmm. if you don't take the time to think of settings and then you just say, everyone's getting a bench it's a, it'll be a disaster. <laughs> like, um, and, and I, I do think in a way, um, hybrid work and flexibility has allowed us to do this. It's allowed us to create an mm -hmm. office, uh, full of choice versus, you know, because there, there's a choice of, of, of where you work. You don't longer, you know, you don't need to be tethered to one space. Um, so I think it's allowed us to use our footprint differently when we were forced to be in one space to do our work. I think at, that was where you saw everyone got a bench or everyone got a cube, you know, and these people all got private offices and there's really no room for much else. You know, there's a break room. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, that was what we've emerged out of. It took us a little too long to get there. We were mobile before we made that, that change to more activity-based uh, planning. But I, I do feel like, you know, if you're engaging any modern interior designer right now, their head is there, you know, they're thinking in that direction. There's been mm -hmm. some interesting work done or some things I've read online around, you know, this idea of people coming back into the office physically and people being okay with that. If there is a compelling reason that is articulated as to why that's a better mode of engagement for what's needed to be done versus a more of a traditional managerial um, rationale of, I want you here so I can make sure you're working. And it was going back to the school, you know, office space example. We saw that during the pandemic with online education, where we were told things like you should give students pop polls, um, during the Zoom session to make sure that they're listening. You should make sure that they have our cameras on so you can make sure they're paying attention. I'm like, well, hell, I, I mean, I can be in a, in a meeting in person and looking right at you, not paying attention. I mean, so. Like, <laughs> 
I mean, you know, am I a corrections officer? Or am I a professor? I mean, so the idea was control again, you know, yeah. that we don't trust you to do what you need to do. And so therefore I need to, you know, make you a, basically a, a child and watch over you through control mechanisms. And we still see that today with, you know, even in the workplace is an open office to promote collaboration or surveillance. Is it like this panopticon, you know, that, mm. that was imagined by uh, Frederick Taylor do yeah. my counting keystrokes, uh, you know, like, so what extent do I not trust you to do what you, what I'm paying you for going back to this transactional or to what extent am I willing to try to persuade you? That, yeah. yeah, I do want you to come back into the office on at these times because this is what we're going to do and it's going to be great and you're you know it's going to be fantastic and you're going to laugh more and it's, you're going to connect more and there's a keg room now because <laughs> Doug designed it in or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think you're touching on something very important, which is uh, you know we have to be straightforward in why you might be asking someone back into a workplace and then the actual workplace needs to reflect this idea also. So, I mean, there are things that just simply can't be done well um, remotely. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and, and to think that you could just uh, go on forever in your basement, you know, with the tiny little window I have up there every day, I mean, is, is you'll just bury yourself, you know? So I think we have to be good communicators uh, and educators about our health and uh, the importance of uh, social uh, activity. And some people are getting that in other places, which is okay. You know, that's great. Um, but there, there's also a mentorship. So, you know, there's, I heard a statistic, 85% of Gen Z wants to come in and work together in a physical space. Well, if they're the only ones coming in, we're missing a huge opportunity to grow right. and share and influence. So um, part of there's there's a responsibility of mentorship that can be communicated. Um, and then even just the idea, like if, if we came into an office, if we were mostly remote, but we came in twice a week and we spent half the day talking, you know, and having coffee together and sharing ideas. That's great. I mean, that would be awesome. We don't have to come in and grind away on a keyboard for eight hours. You know, I think, and that goes back to that rhythm. You know, when we are mm -hmm. together, if you are only coming together two days a week, three days a week, we need to make sure that we're doing the most we can as you know, in, in terms of having group activities. Um, if we're, if we're expecting to have the same sort of day we have at home, but just then doing it in the office, I think we're missing a big opportunity. Mm. So then, you yeah, know, the place has to be different. Yeah. I mean, the place, right. the, then now you're thinking, okay, well now if these are the kinds of things that are important to do in person, right. Connect, uh, discover new ideas, uh, laugh, right. <laughs> How does, I mean, I guarantee we laugh way more in person than we're, than we do on, on over zoom. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yep. And uh, well, maybe not the case with you too, <laughs> but but e either way, you know that 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 will inform the space. That will absolutely inform how we design that space. I, I like the idea of, of a, a uh, like a laughter room, right? <laughs> having that, but I think that's that's a good point too. Where you know the pandemic has afforded us an opportunity as business leaders to rethink what is our space for. You know, and because we we've all figured out how to do quote unquote business as usual remotely, right? And it's like sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not great. But the, like now, there, there's a, a clearer delineation of what is some of the benefits of being together. Um, and there are of course like workplace productivity parts also. But like, yeah, I think this idea of of kind of the the elements of social activity, health, mentorship, wellness uh, are are very important. I mean, even like. In addition to the the kind of statistic you mentioned about Gen Z wanting to work in person, you know, there's also been some other really interesting information that both millennials and Gen Z in general um, are really looking for and explicitly find mentorship an important value they're looking for in their work. You know, so it's not just about getting there to, to, to grind. Like I'm not there for the grind, like you know, the career hustle aspect. But right. if I'm actually to grow in a career, I need someone to help me ladder up. 
Um, and so even this idea too, in terms of what is, what is the purpose of leadership? Um, mm. you know, th- this makes me think of one of the, one of the big challenges. This is a, a, a conversation that a colleague of, um, mine, Jeff Grieg, we've been talking about a lot. He's, he's also an anthropologist and designer and is, is one of the big challenges we see, especially in, in the U S is that we idolize entrepreneur culture and we, uh, idolize the disruptor. We idolize like the single person that, that like comes in and changes everything. And we don't celebrate the people that maintain it. Right. And like, <laughs> why we don't celebrate keeping things going. We're like, Hey, well, let's go follow Steve Jobs. So what about the, like, you know, I don't know, hundred thousand Apple employees that like make everything work. Yeah. You know? And so this idea is something that we have to also like, again, change where we pay attention to. Right. So I think even the broader question around how we design the interior and office spaces and what we're able to do in those, those spaces, the question of, again, socialization, the question of leadership, mentorship coming together. Uh, you know, we have new opportunities to ask these questions, I think, because of the pandemic. Um, so I, I both share your optimism. I'm also a little wary, but, <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's, I do think it's possible though, right? Because again, because we're seeing so many coming together of these different areas, you know, across leadership conversations, you know, even like the, you know, a few years ago, the, the business roundtable talking about we need more stakeholder focus versus versus shareholder only. So, I mean, we're seeing it um, in so many areas. The question is like, how do we pull it together? And, and I mean, I think, I think some, one of the reasons your work is so important is that space actually is something that we don't often think about. Um, same with design. We don't think about design until it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. That's it. Um, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you, know, you don't so think it works, about it's what, like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you yeah. don't, you, I mean, how many people sat uh, in a, terrible chair at a dining room table <laughs> hunched over and they yeah. didn't think about their environment until their back hurts or maybe they've been working in an office with no sunlight eight hours mm-hmm. a day and they're having trouble sleeping you know and they can't figure out why it's like it is this space is and and we all know i mean just at a fundamental level there are spaces we walk into and they and you feel good you feel great Mm. and there are spaces you walk into and you're a little depressed right i mean that's the space (laughs) and so it and that that there's no i mean i'm that's leaving out all the science and all the factors just anybody can uh, i think understand that experience you know there was a uh there's a quote that i'd love to share with you guys i know we're probably wrapping up here soon but there's a quote uh that the workplace is like the new cinema and uh, which I thought was interesting because they had their identity crisis. You have all the entertainment you could want at home. You've got, right. you know, why would I go to the cinema? And mm. the cinema had to understand that it was not, it was not like a utility anymore. Like it wasn't the place you had to go to watch a movie. It needed to deliver a special experience. And that experience right. was, it could be in the technology. It could be a, a food related experience, a, a way to bring people together a level of comfort maybe they couldn't achieve. So there's they had their identity crisis and I feel like the office is is kind of a little bit like the new cinema. Why do I need to go there? You know. So so now the office is is like a consumer product. It has to think of itself as as something uh that people get to choose and that mm-hmm. will that will that will totally take us out of like the peanut butter spread open office, you know, like right. this is, this is, you know, I, this is a utility I'm buying. It's no longer that it's, it's instead, it's, it's an important tool in your toolkit. And now that you know, you've got this great tool, you can pull it out and use it whenever you need to. And I think that's kind of, that's the evolution that is super exciting to be in the industry while this is right. going on, you know? Mm. It makes me think, you talk about cinema, it just made me think for a second, because we've been using words like the office or office space, which are obviously, one, office space is a movie, the office is a show. I mean, in the cultural zeitgeist, how believable do we think it would be if we proposed a television show where people looked forward to and enjoyed going to the office? Because every show I can think of, it's the exact opposite. It's like, you know, this, this place of, you know, the place of work is this dreadful kind of ironic, you know, burdensome environment that we have to fight to make fun, but yet naturally is in many ways repressive. And I can't think of one show where 
people look forward to. I mean, you think about medical shows, people, you know, yeah, it's hard work, but they feel rewarded. Uh, even police shows, it's hard work. They feel rewarded. Fire shows, same thing. Other occupations express the purpose and the mission behind the activity, but I can't think of one show or one movie no. that pre pre presents office work as this in the same way. That's so true. <laughs> That's really yeah. funny. It's this instead this dreaded place where you don't get to pick who you're who you sit next to, right? And you know, and every there's always that person who's eating tuna fish or something right next to you, and you're like, oh, you know, right? There's Dwight. Every you know, there's always it's like Dwight. a Dwight. You know, or the Bobs got a meeting with the Bobs or like, you know, my TPS yep. report or, you know, whatever. And it's just, you know, it's just like thinking about dystopian, you know, again, if I, if we went together collectively, maybe we should do this and went to a network and said, we got a new show for you. It's, it's an office space that people love going to automatically. They're like, what? No, no one's going to believe that. You know anything on aliens? That's more believable. Deep Zero is more believable Real than <laughs> Uh, that's a good, good point. That is a good point. And uh, you know what? That's a wonderful goal for the industry. You know, uh, can we can we get there where it's mainstream understood that the office is a place of joy? Yeah, mm. Ken, how how might we create the office as a place of joy as a design challenge, which is as as, as big of a wicked problem as a climate change? Mm. <laughs> I think. Wow. I mean, is that, well, let's just say there's hardly a bigger problem. I mean, talk about the, the biggest iceberg we're heading towards right now. Right. Um, we just, uh, I, actually, I just spent three days with ASID, so the American Society of Interior Designers. Um, they have a climate health and equity committee. And uh, I just spent three days with them and hosted uh, their board meetings. And it's fascinating what they're thinking about and what they're talking about. And they're, they're, you know, one of the big takeaways uh, I had from them was we need to get away from sustainability. They said, mm -hmm. if we sustainability implies that things should stay exactly how they are. And, and he's like, we need to go, we need to do way better than that. We need to be talking regenerative. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I love that as kind of another goal for, as we design uh, and, you know, place, place and place making has a uh, massive carbon footprint right uh, in fact it accounts for it's the largest carbon footprint our mm. buildings and what's in them mm. um, here's here's another statistic that will shock you 17 billion pounds of furniture end up in the waste every year whoa so toyota could make cars at their existing capacity for three years and throw them all in the trash. And that's how much furniture goes into the waste every year. Is there any way to get a sectional couch out of that? Because I'm kind of in need of one right now. I mean, is there a place I can go before they dump them? Because that would be cool. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Crazy. Anyway, sorry. That's so I'm, fr I'm fresh off that meeting and you teed me up. I wanted no, to share. No, I think it's there. fair. We had a guest on who is a professor of sustainability sciences and talks about sustainable travel, travel experiences, Franz Mailson. And the, the, the basic upshot of our conversation is we're screwed. I mean, it wasn't, you know, there's a guy who studies it and he's like, yeah, I mean, you know, if we, you know, if we keep going the way we are just as we are, that's not good. Yeah, we yeah. need to mm -hmm. go backwards. You know, we need to not go backwards, but we need to change our patterns of behavior because the way in business as usual is going to lead to a calamitous outcome, essentially. So he was right there with y'all in that meeting you had. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, um, I like to be an optimist. Um, I'm wondering, was his advice just to, uh, you know, party while you can? Almost. <laughs> there was like, an element of that. He like, you know, got him while you, you know, smoke him while you got him kind of mentality yeah, going yeah. back to the keg room. Um, but no, it was, you know, how, how might we make small changes? And we talked about biophilia, right? Mm. We talked about ways, you know, small ways in which we can make people feel more greater ownership and connection to the environment and the space surrounding us so that we see ourselves as greater caretakers because the environments that we often live in separate us from those spaces. And so how might we create spaces that are reconnective 
and enhance our sense of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And educate, educate without interference. I mean, education is hard. I mean, if you, if you start researching, uh, plastic bags, okay. Um, there's, there's a bazillion articles and half of them, literally half of them will tell you, uh, that it takes way less energy to make a plastic bag than a canvas bag. And you'd have to pass the canvas bag down four generations to, to actually get the ROI. So you're better off mm-hmm. just using plastic bags. And then there's, then there's canvas, but you know, it's critical. We get the plastic out of the ocean, you know, and there's, there's a, there's an entire argument the other way. Education, a good education around sustainable choices is really hard to come by. And I think there needs to be a movement there too. I mean, and I know there are people dedicated towards clearing that muddy water up, uh, but there's, there's huge opportunity there as well. Mm. Um, I'm inspired now. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Right, so no, maybe I, you need to get yeah. a, spe- you need to get like a special, you know, I actually, I know, I know a couple great uh, podcast hosts. I'd love to connect you with a, a team called break some dishes. Break some and, dishes. Cool. Yeah. And they, they try to do exactly what I talked about is really cut through the mess of, of climate change and help educate people on what can really make a difference. They wouldn't happen to be Greek, would they be? I mean, because isn't that like what Greeks do when they celebrate is break dishes? <laughs> break like dishes, a, right? <laughs> or something. I know like there's that. a New Year's tradition. I, I can't remember what 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 culture it's associated with, but you break yeah. dishes and it's the symbolize, you know, letting you know, getting rid of the old uh you and embracing I, something new. I'm also very inspired by your Snapple cap, honestly, because I think it's evidence that, you know. And I remember, I haven't drank Snapple in a long time, but I also remember Falstaff beer. They used to have like little sayings on the, or little puzzles on the inside of the cap. And what's fascinating to me about that is that a small act of design, like a Snapple cap can lead to greater awareness and a lasting impression that changes our perception and our sense of responsibility. And to what extent you know, with everyday objects like a bottle cap, how might we create the same kind of messaging and education in everyday objects that people typically just treat as, you know, the furniture, but now can communicate something more than use, but can com- communicate something like responsibility. And what Ooh, might that look like? That was a total goosebumps moment right there. That was awesome. Thank you. And once in a while, broke clock is right twice a day. <laughs> I, I am, I am inspired. Uh, and wow, that's such an interesting observation, and and so true that something so small like that can make a a, a big impact. The mundane, you know, when my, when I'm, uh, one of my classes I'm teaching on design experiences, we talked about you know experience as mundane, mindful, meaningful, and metamorphic, and the same thing can be each one. And so a bottle hmm. cap can be mundane. It can be mindful. It can be meaningful. And then it, in your instance with the laughter, it can be metamorphic. The same that object is wild. can optic yes. different things. That is wild. And so um, you design so that it may have the opportunity right. to do those things, right? Yeah, um, the, 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 it does. The quality doesn't reside in the object. The quality resides in the experience that we can facilitate through the object. And that is that is um, that is what we hope for in the workplace. I mean, that is that's it. And you know, we've been, I've been in workplaces where, you know. They didn't have the budget, but man, they've got the culture and yeah. there's an energy and an experience happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not all about having the stuff, but it's more about having the intent and, um, and then executing on it. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, you guys are so fun. I mean, I'm I'm so fun, and I'm so excited to host you uh, on Imagine a Place soon. 
Uh, yeah, so I can't I'm wait. super excited to join you. Yeah, yeah likewise. And, uh, you know, this has been a great kind con- I mean, obviously we could, could keep going on and on and I hope we do, um, you know, and because there's, there's a lot of work to be done and, you know, as ethnographers, as Adam and I are, nothing gets us more excited than mundane everyday objects and artifacts. And how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where other people see furniture, we see opportunity for exploring cultures and lives. So <laughs> you're speaking our language. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I love how you see, you see past the thing and in a way you kind of see into um the soul of community and the soul of of workplace that's been a fun discussion uh and and i will i will be thinking about this one same same yeah 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 cool thanks so much thanks so much doug this has been great yeah yeah been a lot of fun thank you guys We want to thank Doug Shapiro for taking us on a journey of the future of the workplace, how to design better workplace environments, and how that ties into employee experience. You can learn more about Doug's work, OFS Furniture, and Imagine a Podcast. Podcast. I'm going to put that in there. A podcast. Imagine a Place <laughs> podcast in our show notes. And as always, we want to get in conversation with you. And some of the questions that we came away from today's episode thinking about are, what kind of workplace do you want to work in? And of course, this could be a office that you go to. It could be also how do you want your home office to be set up? So it's an important question as we wrestle with you know where and, and when we can be in different places. And as you think about this, what are some ways that workplaces of the past have missed this mark? You know, how can we then bring the desires that we're looking for into alignment with, with the realities of today? And also a key question here is what kind of wig would you wear to change corporate culture? Shoot us a message as always, feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. We'll see you there. I think I want a Rick James wig. A Rick James wig <laughs> from the 1980s might be might be the way to go. A good idea. Because I mean, it's hard not to change corporate culture when you have a Rick James wig on. So I'm going to go with that. Okay. And as you process that visual, uh, we do want to thank you for listening to Experience by Design podcast. Uh, we keep growing and growing. Numbers keep rising. Feedback keeps coming in. And we couldn't be more excited to bring you this great content and these great contacts and to share their own experiences and work in this large profession. So thank you so much for taking this journey with us. And as always, if you're an experienced design company or a professional looking to increase your profile, have a conversation or wear a wig on the episode, reach out to us to talk about sponsoring an episode or appearing on the episode as well. And you can always support our podcast and our wig budget by going over to our website and buying us a coffee through our Buy Us a Coffee link. And as always, as Adam said, you can share your feedback at a feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And you can also go to that website to subscribe, join the EXD community, and stay in touch with all of the great EXD news coming your way. And with that, folks, be safe, be happy, be kind, be wiggy, and be here for the next experience by design. <laughs>